1: And now, here's your host.
0: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the first permanent resident at the Walt Disney World Resort. If we look back in history, we realize that Walt Disney had this grand ambition for creating the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. He was going to have a community where people lived and worked and did things and were part of a greater effort. The thing about living there though, this was going to be a company town where people were actually employees of the Walt Disney Company or one of the affiliate companies that was doing research in the area or was otherwise associated in some way. Those would be the only people living there. So you couldn't just buy a house there. That was never the intent because these had to be temporary type residents, people who would be on a transient basis, who would be employed and doing something productive and constructive. Now, how that worked out, whether that would have worked, you know, you could debate that long and hard. But the reality is, this was the plan. And as I've talked about in the past, when Disney did get their Reedy Creek Improvement District and did incorporate two cities, they have actual residents living in houses on two different, in the two different cities, in two different parts of the property. So there are people actually living there. And it's kind of interesting because the cities of Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista, have real cities, real communities. But again, these are employees of the Walt Disney Company. People who are working for the company betterment are there to represent the company and still represent the town. It's a weird mix of things that happens. And of course, you have the college program where you have people coming over from colleges and staying at Walt Disney World and actually living in a dormitory style housing. And they're there for the length of their contract with Disney, that time that they're doing their educational moment. And then they go back to school. So they are temporary residents as well. They're living in some corporate housing. Similar with the international program that used to exist. I'm not sure how it exists today exactly. But the same principle applied where people would come over be here on a visa, be working and be living in Disney housing, Disney owned housing. So they were employees of the company and doing whatever. So it was a company town. Now, the interesting thing is that when Walt Disney bought the property, he realized that one of the things he needed to have was eyes on the property. Joe Potter, when he was hired, came down and was living in a hotel that was uh, on Lake Eola, near the, near the Cherry Hotel that uh, I've talked about before, where, where there was the reveal of Walt Disney being the owner of the properties. So Joe Potter was always in town, but Lake Eola is somewhere around 15 miles away from the property he bought down in the southern part of the county. So it wasn't exactly close and he didn't exactly have eyes on it, and Joe, was the construction supervisor. He was there to make sure construction happened. He was making sure the land got purchased, that it was, all the deeds were done properly and all those things from the perspective of development. So we needed someone else on his property that would be there as the eyes and ears and could be engaged as things were developing. Now, I've talked before about the Orlando Air Park that the Bronson family owned. Now, remember that the Bronson family lived in Central Florida, owned a large tract of land up there. And probably about 10,000 acres or so of Disney's property came from them. It was cattle ranches, it was orange groves, it was whatever. And they had that air park, this airport, that was on the northern edge of what the property was. And it was the airstrip where Walt Disney landed his plane a couple of times when he came in to visit his property, when he wanted to see the property the first time before he purchased it, after he purchased it, when he wanted to kind of walk the land. And then in the early days of construction, before he got sick, He landed there at least once, maybe twice, where he went off and explored the land and was with when he went with Joe Fowler and went around the property. That's where he landed his plane. So there was a a connection there. The Bronsons also owned a home there. It was a it was a home that was there to support the people that were flying in and out. So they had a place to stay overnight or could live there for a short period of time. The Bronsons were a wealthy family that lived in the area. So they had several homes around where people would live. And as they would come and go to different places that was one of the homes they had when the bronsons sold this property to walt disney they sold the home and the uh, airstrip as well so walt disney had a home on the property if you wanted to have someone be employed by the company and be there as his eyes and ears what better place to start from and this is where the story gets much more interesting in a way i've told you before that paul heliwell this cia operative who ran a law firm in Miami, which is kind of a strange thing. That law firm did a lot of legal work in Latin America with respect to some of the things that the federal government wanted to do uh, in controlling some of Latin America and some of the CIA operations that happened there. So, the law firm, while Paul Halliwell was, in fact, a licensed attorney in the state of Florida, he had a lot of things happening. He was doing some real estate transactions in the state, he was working for the CIA, he'd had Latin American connections. What he was doing exactly is kind of anyone's guess, but he was running this firm out of Miami, and that's the one that Walt Disney contracted to do all the legal paperwork and make sure that everything got filed properly for the Walt Disney World Resort. When he was buying the land, when he was trying to make sure they had the land use rights, that he was trying to get the state to give him the special improvement district, all of those things were handled by Hellewell's law firm. So you have all these things coming together. You you have Hellowell there. He's in Miami. So Hellowell's office was over on like Biscayne Boulevard, which is over on near the coast. The University of Miami has a law school. They're about, oh, six or seven miles away from Biscayne Boulevard. So there were a number of people going to the law school there. And in the 1960s, people that were going to the law school or going to the university had varying backgrounds. Some of them had been in, the, in World War II or Korea. Some of them had done other uh, activities in life. Some of them had gone straight through to school. Many of them had plans and designs to do something bigger in the state. A lot of them were involved with state politics. It, there was a lot of things happening. Miami was a burgeoning society where there was a lot of influence be, because of Miami Beach growing up. Miami Beach in the 50s looked like it was gonna be this Mecca that was gonna be something that rivaled Las Vegas. So there were a lot of lawyers there who wanted to make sure they were involved in that operation, right? That everything came down and they would they would profit from the fact that it might be Las Vegas Southeast. So there was one lawyer in particular who was going to the University of Miami. His name was Phil Smith. He was going to school there. He graduated. And he was one of these uh, bright young stars, had a lot of uh, things ahead of him. A lot of people were interested in hiring him. And he had an offer to go to work. In Panama to work uh, down by the Panama Canal Zone and do some of the legal work there to head up the legal office right out of law school it's amazing you know the connections you make sometimes in life I, I can't even explain anyway his law professor called him and said hey I want to set up another interview with you there's another company in Miami this Hellowell firm that wants to interview you for a job so he thought that was interesting and he went ahead and went through the, with the interview the thing about the interview was there wasn't a lot of information he didn't get a lot about who he'd be working for what he'd be doing and the kinds of things that might happen there. The job sounded intriguing. He was gonna head up a new operation, but he had no idea who it was for, what it was gonna be, or what he would be doing day to day. So he said no, and he went to work in Panama. A little time passed, and the firm called back and asked him if he'd like to come to work for them. And at this time, this was about the same time that the Orlando Sentinel broke the story that Walt Disney had purchased a bunch of land in Central Florida. He had read about that, and he's like, is the employer walt disney and the answer was yes it was he could go to work for the walt disney company as the legal counsel in the in the walt disney world resort setting up a lot of the operations there he leapt at the chance he thought it was a really good opportunity to take advantage of something and really put himself on the map as as a lawyer and really do something interesting Now, now he was married and he had two small kids i'm guessing they would be probably around my age late 50s or so and uh, they were really, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting and intriguing opportunity to move out of Panama, move to Florida, and do something really unique. So after he, was, after he went through the process with the Hellowell firm, he talked to Walt Disney himself. Walt Disney sat him down, told him about these plans and designs for what he had to, wanted to do in Florida. What he was planning for the Epcot, what he was planning for the, the Disney World, the Disneyland East. And they, it was really intriguing to him. So he took the opportunity and took the job. Now, one of the things Walt told him was, even though technically he would be working through the law firm, he was going to be an employee of the Walt Disney Company. And so he was hired as the first permanent employee of Walt Disney World. And better still, if you want to look at it that way, Walt offered him that house, the one there that's by the airstrip, to live in so that he could be the eyes and ears on the ground as they were doing the planning and development for Walt Disney World. And he thought, wow, what an adventure in life. I could go somewhere, be unique, do something that no one has ever really done before and no one will be able to do again. And so took the job and moved into that house. So he lived there for a couple of years while they were doing the the planning and development of Walt Disney World. And it was really kind of neat because he had the run of all of the area there. All of the things that were around Walt Disney World Everything that you know today or you've heard about in the past. Riles Island that became Discovery Island. They had a little boat and they would go out there all the time and check out the turtles with the kids and do all these fun things. They watched the development of the parks. They were up close to the town of Windermere, which was a a fairly affluent community just north of uh, the, the Disney World Resort. It's grown into something much more affluent now. But at the time, there was a community there and several executives lived there. So he would go up there from time to time. He also was involved in a lot of the activities that were happening, so he got to see that firsthand what was actually happening. He met with Joe Potter all the time. Joe was there all the time doing construction work. And as they had legal questions and things would come up, he and Joe would interact. Of course, Joe Fowler, being the overall site supervisor and making sure that everything happened correctly, was also involved with him. So he had this connection to Joe Fowler as well. Now, something I just wanted to point out, something interesting. Remember that Joe Potter, was an army general who had retired, gone to work for the Panama Canal District, and then come to work for Walt Disney Company after he had had a stint with the with the New York World's Fair. Smith was an army veteran, and he had worked in the canal zone as well. So there was this interesting connection there. I don't know how connected that is or if it's relevant to the story, but I just thought that was really kind of an interesting little uh, intriguing side note. I told you before that Hallowell the CIA operative, wrote the legislation that actually was used in the state of Florida to create the Special Improvement District. One thing I can tell you is that uh, Smith was actually involved in that operation, making sure that the paperwork all came together. He had to learn Florida codes and learn how to work through the system, talk to different people, and he's the one who actually presented the package to the to the state government. And uh, from what I gather, it was a five-inch thick document so pretty extensively researched and thought through in terms of what they wanted to do. So just consider that when you think about the big picture, Hallowell was responsible for it, but Smith actually is the one who put it on the desks of the uh, legislators and was responsible for the, the, the nature of it, the, the, you know, the nuts and bolts, the little, the dotting the I's, the crossing the T's and making sure everything was right. Hallowell lived in the state of Florida too, but Hallowell had other activities and things he was engaged in. So kind of interesting that way. So anyway, that's the story. Uh, He lived there for a couple of years, just before the park opened in 1970 or so. He moved out and uh, moved to another location that was outside of the Disney property. He stayed with the Walt Disney Company uh, for most of his career. He lived in Claremont in the later part of his life, which is still pretty close to the Walt Disney World Resort. So he lived in that area from when he got there in the 1960s till the time he died in 2016. It's pretty remarkable in that sense. I wanted to read to you from the obituary because I thought it was kind of interesting. Philip Nelson Smith, 83, of Mineola, Florida, passed away at his home Tuesday, February 23, 2016. Philip was born on June 29, 1932 in Parkersburg, West Virginia, son of Nelson and Hilda. He served in the U.S. Army and afterwards had a successful career as an attorney for the Walt Disney World, where he also served as senior vice president. Phil Smith was just a few years out of law school when he started working for this mysterious entity acquiring land for what would become the world's most popular theme park resort. As Walt Disney World's first permanent employee, Smith helped pave the legal path for much of the attraction's development. Smith of Mineola died Tuesday of complications from kidney disease and COPD. He was 83. He really built a fine legal organization that really, frankly, kept us out of legal trouble," said Dick Nunes, retired chairman of Walt Disney Attractions. Under Phil Smith, I never had to worry about any legal problems. I knew we had a very competent guy that would take care of it. His standard quote, this should be on his gravestone, was, let me see if I can find a way. Smith was originally lured to the job by Paul Helliwell of Disney's Miami law firm in 1965. Disney was quietly buying more than 40 square miles of Orlando land, and Smith's wife Gwen said her husband didn't even know at first what company he would represent. He really didn't know that it was Disney yet, Gwen Smith said. The secret was unveiled soon after. One of Smith's biggest accomplishments was helping create the Reedy Creek Improvement District, an unusual government entity through which Disney controls its own planning, building codes, and emergency services. By the end of 1966, a five-inch thick pile of documents related to Reedy Creek was ready for the Florida legislature. At first, they were amazed at just the size of it, Smith told the Orlando Sentinel in 1988. I right away fielded a whole bunch of early questions that started out with, what are you guys doing down there anyway? It took about six weeks to get it safely through the legislature, and frankly, we considered that a success, something of a coup. I think there was only one nay vote in the Senate and probably not more than five in the House." Smith had another role. He watched over Disney's land during early construction. He, his wife, and the two toddlers lived in an isolated piece of property. Smith picnicked with his family on what would become Discovery Island. Sid Jakowitz, a former Disney attorney who worked for Smith, remembered his former boss having a good sense of humor. The company had a fairly harsh form letter. It would send to people when it sought permission to use Disney characters. But when one man sent a huge Donald Duck figure carved from a carrot, asking if he could sell similar creations in the Magic Kingdom. Smith didn't have the heart to send him the standard response, Jackowitz said. He decided to have Disney send a letter that, quote, recognized how beautiful his work was and that people should see it, but unfortunately not in the Magic Kingdom, Jekowitz said. Former Disney executive Duncan Dixon described Smith as a humble man. Smith's wife used the same description. He didn't rub it into people he was a Disney attorney or anything like that, said Gwen Smith, who met her husband on a blind date the couple would have celebrated their 50th anniversary in June. Smith retired in the early 1990s as Disney World's Senior Vice President of Administration and Support. Phil played a significant role in the development of Walt Disney World and his contributions will long be remembered. Disney World's president, George Kalogridis, said in an emailed statement, Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends. Philip is survived by his loving wife of 49 years, Gwendolyn. He and Gwendolyn raised two children. Jeannie S. Daly of Mineola and Christopher M. Smith of China. Philip had two children from a previous marriage as well, Catherine Hughes of Tallahassee and Elizabeth Smith of Everett, Washington. Also surviving Philip are his sister, Jane Smith of Chicago, Illinois, 13 grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, and his other loving companion, his dog, Happy. just so that was really nice. A nice fitting tribute to the man who was Disney's first employee. He was the first person to live on Disney property. He was the first person who was engaged there. and was a part of something and it was really neat to think about that house being there right there uh it would actually be if you're on the corner where hotel plaza boulevard meets buena vista drive and you're going toward disney springs make the other turn to go up toward where the uh there's a hilton resort right there and it's actually on the back part of the parking lot as you're going along the street there's a parking lot that faces the one of the fire stations there and it would be in that parking lot where he lived the house is long gone now. From what I heard, they had picked it up and moved it at some point. It was being stored as some historical thing, but I have no idea where they put it or what they did with it. They may have just demolished it, I really don't know. But the Disney archive has a couple of pictures of Walt Disney sitting on the front porch at that house, of talking to Joe, the Joes, Potter and Fowler, outside the property. And it's really neat to kind of see it in that historical context. You know, it's those things that really make it interesting when you think about the Walt Disney World Resort and its history and what it looked like. And knowing something about the person who lived there and was part of the whole thing and lived on Disney property just makes it that much better. So there you go. That's the story of the first permanent resident at Walt Disney World, Phil Smith.
1: One little spark of inspiration is at the heart (laughs) of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new, One Little Spark lights up
0: for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to remind you that as we talk about things that happen in the social space, It's not always about race or ethnicity. It's not about religion. There are many, many things we can talk about. And I found this article in the Associated Press by Anita Snow, and it was back on Sunday, April 10th, that I thought was kind of interesting. America's homeless ranks graying as more retire on the street. Carla Finocchio's slide into homelessness began when she split with her partner of 18 years and temporarily moved in with a cousin. The 55-year-old planned to use her $800 a month disability check to get an apartment after back surgery. But she soon was sleeping in her old pickup protected by her German Shepherd mix Scrappy, unable to afford housing in Phoenix, where median monthly rents soared 33% during the coronavirus pandemic to over $1,220 for a one bedroom, according to apartmentlist.com. Finoki is one face of America's graying homeless population, a rapidly expanding group of destitute and desperate people, 50 and older, suddenly and without a permanent home after a job loss, divorce, family death, or health crisis during a pandemic. We're seeing a huge boom in senior homelessness, said Kendra Hendry, a caseworker at Arizona's largest shelter, where older people make up about 30% of those staying there. These are not necessarily people who have mental illness or substance abuse problems. They are people being pushed into the streets by rising rents. Academics project their numbers will nearly triple over the next decade, challenging policymakers from Los Angeles to New York to imagine new ideas for sheltering the last of the baby boomers as they get older, sicker, and less able to pay spiraling rents. Advocates say much more housing is needed, especially for extremely low-income people. Navigating sidewalks and wheelchairs and walkers, the aging homeless have medical ages greater than their years, with mobility, cognitive, and chronic problems like diabetes. Many contracted COVID-19 or couldn't work because of the pandemic restrictions. Cardelia Corley, 65, ended up on the streets of Los Angeles County after the hours at her telemarketing job were cut. I'd always worked, been successful, put my kid through college, the single mother said, and then all of a sudden things went downhill. Corley traveled all night aboard buses and rode commuter trains to catch a cat nap. And then I would go to Union Station downtown and wash up in the bathroom, said Corley. She recently moved into a small East Hollywood apartment with help from the People Concern, a Los Angeles nonprofit. A 2019 study of aging homeless people, led by the University of Pennsylvania, drew on 30 years of census data to project the US population of people 65 and older experiencing homelessness will nearly triple from 40,000 to 106,000 by 2030, resulting in a public health crisis as their age-related medical problems multiply. Dr. Margot Cushel, a physician who directs the Center for Vulnerable Populations at the University of California, San Francisco, said her research in Oakland on how homelessness affects health has shown nearly half the tens of thousands of older homeless people in the U.S. are on the streets for the first time. We're seeing that retirement is no longer the golden dream, said Cushel. A lot of the working poor are destined to retire on the streets. That's especially true of the younger baby boomers now in their 50s to late 60s who don't have pensions or 401k accounts, About half of both women and men, ages 55 to 65, have no retirement savings, according to the census. Born between 1946 and 1964, baby boomers now number over 70 million, the census shows, with the oldest boomers in their mid-70s all will hit age 65 by 2030. The aged homeless also tend to have smaller social security checks after years of working off the books. Donald Whitehead Jr., executive director of the Washington-based advocacy group National Coalition for the Homeless, said Black, Latino, and Indigenous people who who came of age in the 1980s amid recession and high unemployment rates are disproportionately represented among the homeless. Many nearing retirement never got well-paying jobs and didn't buy homes because of discriminatory real estate practices. So many of us didn't put money into the retirement program, thinking that Social Security was going to take care of us, said Rudy Solis, 63, Operations Director for Justice Center, which offers meals, showers, and a mail drop, and other services for the aged homeless in Phoenix. The average monthly Social Security retirement payment as of December was $1,658. Many older homeless people have much smaller checks because they worked fewer years or earn less than others. People 65 and over with limited resources and who didn't work enough to earn retirement benefits may be eligible for supplemental security income of $841 a month. Nestor Castro, 67, was luckier than many who lose permanent homes. Castro was in his late 50s living in New York when his mother died and he was hospitalized with bleeding ulcers, losing their apartment. He initially stayed with his sister in Boston, then for more than three years at the YMCA in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just before Christmas, Castro got a permanent, subsidized apartment through Hearth Inc., a Boston nonprofit dedicated to ending homelessness among older adults. Residents pay 30% of their income to stay in one of Hearth's 228 units. Castro pays with part of his Social Security check and a part time job. He also volunteers at a food pantry and a nonprofit that assists people with housing. Housing is a big problem around here because they're building luxury apartments that no one can afford, he said. A place down the street is $3,068 a month for a studio. I just thought that was really interesting because it underscores another social issue we have in this country. And it's the, it's the issue of aging populations and the fact that baby boomers haven't saved for retirement for various reasons. And as they note, some of the discriminatory practices that have been in place for many years impacted people that led up to this. So just kind of an interesting thing to think about and I just wanted you to consider it. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.